You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's Red Center number 56. And uh, sitting beside me is Jason Wingrove. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'll be sitting beside him. Is an MX, an MX Red. It is. So we're very happy about that here at the Tech Penthouse. Mm, putting it through its paces already, you guys. You're already cracking it, cracking yeah, it open. We're having a lot of fun actually playing with it. Lots of interesting things to talk about when we get to that bit. Um, but yes, so we've got a, a big show for you this week. I want to apologise before we even start because I can tell you that I know it's going to be a big show. It is going to be long. Because you've got a fabulous interview. Yeah, I spoke, finally spoke to Shane Herbert, uh, cameraman who did, uh, well, apart from other things, apart from Terminator 4, did Drumline and a whole bunch of fantastic uh, uh, features, but also has been... Uh, getting seriously stuck into DSLRs and uh, yeah great chat with him it was a long one but it is uh, absolutely dense uh, he's a nut- he's a wonderful nutcase yeah also of course him. we've got Red Day uh, where our own Jeff Huso was there to report for um, Red Center and of course we've got uh, Mr. MX here and there's been some Canon news and Apple news so we're gonna have to get into it keep moving at a cracking pace unfortunately though it is I know in advance going to be a long ep and i apologize if you find this offensive um email us um but i apologize we'll try and tell you yeah, let us know if it's if it's too long we're not gonna be wafting we're gonna be moving so let's move let's start with the news and now the red center news okay yeah well uh, the continuing builds of um uh, red city x continue it was uh, i think like 90, 94 build 94 or so at last episode and in the week between or so since last uh, uh last recorded i've been um you know having i have my little show notes open as i uh, you know update it throughout the week and add stuff into it and i've changed this like five times we've gone from build 99 to build 101 and now we've i guess we've gone from beta builds to uh, pre-release build 104 of uh, Red Cine X, and it's uh, really sort of coming along. Lots of uh, uh, feature ads and uh, uh, bug fixes along the way, um, but uh, I think there's there's probably still the odd bug to go. Yes, and a little bird on the grapevine told me that uh, the Final Cut plugin or the Apple plugin uh, will be coming out soon because now there are cameras out in the field. Of course, we want to use FCP, and uh, that's all coming. Which right. Is good. So yeah, at present you can't use Mr. MX footage. You can't just drag it into Final Cut Pro. You know, I haven't tried because I, uh, but I understand that's the case, yes. Okay. But um, I believe there is a, uh, a plug-in thing coming. Excellent. Right. Um, okay. Um, so, so apart from build uh, 99, uh, 101, um, <laughs> uh, interesting news um, about resolution, even of the, in fact, the 4K uh, R3D files that we're kind of used to pre-MX. Yeah, well, what um, uh, Jim's been showing on, on Red User is some, uh, I guess, are these like MTF charts? Is that what we call them? Yep. Right. Okay. I really have no idea how to actually interpret them, but uh, basically, I guess what we're trying to, what we're establishing here is what the uh, what if, if you start with a four and a half k or a five k sensor, what is the actual final resolution yeah, or so you've measured got, if resolution you've got a line at the pair, end of it? You've got a line pair on your MTF chart. Can you resolve them? Because obviously, yeah. if it's higher resolution than you can resolve, you get grey, quite literally grey. Yeah, you can't resolve the two lines. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that's related to contrast. It's related to resolution. It's uh, related to a bunch of things. Lens related as much as, as anything, of course. Yeah, so essentially we're saying that uh, 4K uh, well, essentially now, now yields 
3.5k essentially is the measured resolution at the end of the, at the end of the chain, I guess. So what happened is they were clocking it at about 3.2. Now I've often argued many times, as regular listeners will know, that this is like um, you know circle jerking. Yeah, really, because honestly, um, boy, that's going to get twitted. So. Um, because honestly, like, it's great resolution. And, of course, if you stick up an, an a, um, F35, gorgeous F35, it's yep. not going to resolve to 1920 by It resolved to about 85% of that number. So if you've moved from 3.2 to 3.5, which I think is terrific, don't get me wrong, great. But quite honestly, it's like you're killing it. Now I'm killing it plus then putting one last kick in. I mean, it's like it's a, such a... Like, you're already not even, like, marginally better, but so vastly better. That being said, even if you take F35 footage and then scale it up cleverly to uh, 4K, it's not going to look like trash. Mm. And they're saying that the 4.5K, 4.5K basically uh, runs out at 4.1K as an end-measured resolution. So I guess basically it's, it's, it's uh, you know, a hit back at uh, anybody who says that, you know, red doesn't, you know, resolve to, to true 4K. I mean, but Which, that, you know, I think, again, who, ca- who cares? Case. Yeah, like, it's like, who gives a rats? Yeah. Now, I'm trying to remember, what was, what they're saying 35 mil? You know what it's um, a bit like? It's not it. as bad as this, but you know what it's a bit like on the internet where you say, I've got download bandwidth that I'm buying from this company of whatever, yeah, exactly. and you never expect to get that in everyday performance, but if they have a bigger number to start with, you have a bigger download at home, but you never expect to clock the number that they sell you. Yeah, never. Okay, good. <laughs> Going on? <laughs> never going to get it. Uh, okay, well, this one, hmm, this kind of shits me a little bit. The <laughs> Canon 550D or the Rebel T2i or the Kiss X4. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, it's the baby elephant in the corner. Now, this, for those uh, of you that aren't regular listeners, the reason that Jason is upset with this is he's just recently... over there. He's a 5D Mark II <laughs> that's only able to run at 30 frames a second. But I knew that. But still, that being it doesn't said, matter. We, still doesn't, we expect in April just... for that to be uh, changed with an, up, an upgrade. Hey, um, but April is. Okay. What? You know something I don't. April. Did, was, did I say that out loud? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, um, so, yeah, obviously, yeah, Canon's come out with the uh, Canon 550D, um, uh, which is like 899 with a kit lens, 8 to 50. You were buying it lens. for the large sensor. You weren't buying it. You were yeah, buying it for I, the sensor knowing that it was going to get that firmware yeah. upgrade. And, and, it, was all, it, and it, all, it all completely gets justified later on by uh, Mr. Herbert. Uh, Can I just say something? We, we, uh, we'll talk about this later in the show because we, when we get to the gear section, we're going to discuss Steadicam. We were at a Steadicam training camp. Um, and uh, at this doesn't sound at all geeky in any way. Oh, to this audience, <laughs> you guys love that, right? Okay, so listen, we take the, the thing, and I had a 7D and a 5D there. I was taking still photos with the 5D, and they are measurably, or okay, not measurably, they are qualitatively better. Like, I just look at them and I go, the pictures I'm getting off my 7D just X. don't look as good as yeah. pictures of my 5D. Exactly. Now, the 5D can't you know, shoot 24 frames a second off the top of the Steadicam like we were with the 7D. Mm. So I'm now completely in the school of my 5D is my stills camera. Yep. And I, I just can't beat exactly. a 50 mil lens on that sucker. Yep. And my 7D is primarily going to be used for video. Yep. End of story. Yeah, absolutely. You've got the best of both worlds. And obviously... And you know what? On a Steadicam, you actually don't want a super shallow depth of field because it's actually quite hard to focus. <laughs> particularly if you don't have a remote focus or anything. Um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so set and forget. In the show notes, which again, we would just implore you to actually have a look at if you're interested in this stuff because Jason does an enormous amount of work putting these together. There's an entire chart showing the comparative advantages of each. 
um, and showing why his camera is shit. <laughs> when you scroll <laughs> down and you get to see, you know, the uh, EOS 7D, 2997, 25, 23, 24, 30. But you're only thinking it about it from a video point of view. Think about it from a stills point of view. Oh, look, absolutely. I knew 50% of it would be the stills and I spent my last... My last camera was APS-C, was a Nikon D200 or whatever. And uh, I just could definitely see, you know, the, the subtle difference between, you know, the, the sensors, uh, particularly for stills. Now, what, what's this similar Canon announcement or related Canon announcement about the EOS Movie FCP plugin? What's that? Uh, so, theoretically, this is going to be for, uh, for Final Cut Pro. That uh, was rumoured and rumoured and on a million blogs saying it's announced and it's released. But it is, it's, still, it's still on the way. It is in development, basically, Canon announcing it's in development of a plugin will enable quicker and easier editing of EOS footage uh, for Final Cut Pro. It's going to allow you to do log and, uh, um, log log, and capture. Log and, capture. Okay. and I believe uh, faster uh, transcoding to uh, ProRes 422. Um, mu- much quicker encoding. To, I don't know, quite know how we're going to do that but, uh, and why that can't be achieved already. And how how Apple's uh, how Canon's plugin is gonna gonna make it so, but theoretically that is certainly in development. Uh, f- it is officially announced and it will be released, I think, in March. Elsewhere around yeah, the net, available for testing and evaluation as a beta in March. Elsewhere around the net, you've managed to dig up and a really interesting odd statistic from the UK. Well, yeah, I'm not quite sure how many rental companies they surveyed because uh, it's a very very, you know, tape and uh, digital biased list here. But initially, thanks to uh, Shoot Blue and Tom Dobby on um, uh, Twitter, uh, Televisual Magazine did a survey of uh, the UK's top 10 most hired cameras. Now, pretty much it is Sony, 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 Sony. There's a red in there. Red is number three out of top ten most hired cameras. Now, I'm not sure whether they're actually surveying... Clearly, they're probably not surveying any, any film rental houses. I would like to see the stats of of uh, how much... Uh, where Red sits in within, you know, within say, within Panavision or within within uh, Samuelson's or Dunton's or whatever. Um, but interesting to see how where that runs. But in, in uh, at least with um, a lot of the more tape rental houses, uh, Red is sitting there number three. Top of the list is the X3, which I find quite odd. Uh, Sony X3, Sony 450, DSR450, then the Red, then 790p, 700 uh, DW, DVW 970, EX1, da 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 da, down to right at the bottom there is the F900R, uh, <laughs> number 10, well, down the bottom, number 10. So interesting to see that uh, red is creeping into that sort of uh, um, traditionally the more, the more tapey sort of houses, I guess. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Maybe if someone's got the magazine, we can uh, d- uh, deal a bit deeper, but it's not, it's not I, available online. I have to say, so. my little stat. and good friend. John Montgomery would just be screaming at the podcast right now. He hates top 10 lists, even if it's a top 10 rental list. Um, okay. Aperture 3 right, came next out. Next story. We have the top 10 of... <laughs> top sorry, 10 reasons Aperture why Aperture is Yeah, which is interesting. Issue. It's well-timed for me because I've, now I've actually physically got a camera that can shoot raw. And, of course, having sat on the LX3 for, for a, you know, a year plus and never get any raw, um, raw, raw compatibility with that thing, of course, now the moment I've sold it, that LX3 has now got raw as well. But, um, yeah, Aperture 3, uh, this is a well-earned update. Now, you're an Aperture user, aren't you, Mike? I'm, I'm yet to... I'm still in iPhoto at the moment, and I'm fluxing between the two I've got 
you know, test and or beta well, versions talk to of Stu both. And he'll say that yes, um, that real men of uh, a vision have uh, are Lightroom people. Yes, yeah, you could express it that way, yes. or you talk to me, and I'll say, look, the thing about um, Aperture, which is so terrific, is you get all the inherited properties of being integrated with the Apple operating system. So, yeah. the book, which I actually even gave a talk about in PhD recently, saying that. Um, producing those books for pictures. Yeah. You can walk in with a hardcover book if you've got enough time, of course, to order it. You got, uh, walk in for a book that's, you know, 30 bucks or something and just blows people out of the, the water. The book you showed me that you did for behind the scenes for Red Dwarf, I've got to say that's utterly stunning. Looked and all of that fantastic. stuff comes from being integrated beautiful. with Apple. So, yes, yeah. I understand Stu's point that a lot of tools, though, obviously a bunch of them have appeared now in Aperture, um, are in Lightroom. But I would still say that for that, for the email, for the just integrating yeah. with my user database. And also, here's the other thing. Now with faces, for example, I went and cataloged faces. Well, of course, it finds a face and I start to type in and it looks at my contacts list. And if it links to that and I, I click sort of, yes, that's the person I'm talking about. Well, mm. now that face is not only linked to that name, but that address, that email, that right. everything, right? Yeah. So... The ecosystem is what tips me over the edge to Aperture. Now, I will say this. If you are using Aperture, I've, and I've got to say, Jace, I find this highly offensive. I mean, really, like, fucking pisses me off, is that when Aperture 3 came out, there were just a ton of people, so-called experts, going, Aperture 3, it's great, it's great, upload it, it's much faster, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly, none of them ever fucking used it mm. because there are a bunch of issues with Aperture that, that you need to use. Um, so a couple of examples is... If you run it in 64-bit mode and it normally opens in 64-bit mode, you're likely to have problems. I mean, Jeff Huser had a ton of problems running in uh, 64-bit mode. I had some problems. I would literally crash the Finder opening aperture sometimes. Really? Yeah. Okay. And now you've so just, it, so just to explain how you do that, yeah, you okay. just need to open Aperture's Get Info box on the app and yep. actually click a button that says Run 32-bit mode. Yeah. So quit the app, get it, get info on the app icon, itself, yeah, and click on Run in 64-bit mode, and then no, on the 32-bit, 32-bit mode. Yeah. Right. The second thing is the faces stuff is really slow. I mean, not talking like vaguely slow. I'm talking like, uh, well, I had a 256 gigabyte. Um, archive that it went through mm. but it went for hours not minutes yeah I mean, and not making that like yeah no hours, i've like done it, it all like on hours. same in iphoto it does the it same actually took hours yeah. and uh then updating the app itself fully requires so that you could sort of paint on things and do the sort of things you want for all your old photos requires you to copy the aperture library completely so if you're on a laptop there's no chance in hell you can have another 256 gig free yeah you can't also pick the destination that it dupes to so you can't say oh increase really? like take this library and put the new library over here on a spare hard drive so mm. what you have to end up doing is move the entire library to a spare hard drive that has tons of room open aperture and in you know the normal way to so you can select an alternate aperture library yeah. find it on that external hard drive it'll then put the duplicate next to the original hard drive oh, so the neutral file on that Lock. external hard drive yeah. you have no say in this matter then move it back when it's all done then refind it again um, when you relaunch now all so have of you that, upgraded the app or you've just I've totally re- I've totally upgraded paid upgrade versus buy, I, buying I, the demo. I got the paid upgrade okay. because Imagine. I totally had the first one yeah sure so i owned the first one legally i bought the upgrade legally and so i've done a lot of this stuff and the reason i'm saying this is because i just think that there's this um pressure with the net these days to be first with a review 
And I just find it kind of offensive that if you've got people that, well, I think it's a trust issue, really. It's like if you're following people or working with people in this environment and somebody recommends something, then you kind of go, good, I should upgrade, right? Yeah. What I hate is you do this and then about two weeks later, they fess up, oh, it's really buggy and all these problems. Oh, you go, well, true. why did you Once bloody you well say to do it? With it. Yeah, but the trouble is everybody says you should do it because it's really cool. But what they're actually doing is I wrote a review of Aperture. wasn't a a respected source I normally go to. And I swear to God, it was just a reworking of the press release. And they were like, we're just using it now. Yeah. And I mean, really. So anyway, I think it is good if you're an Aperture user. I definitely want to upgrade. But you should be warned. I would completely back up my library before I started. I'd take the notes of what we just said. And then after you've done all of those things... Um, you will have a program that's still a bit buggy, yep. but way better in 32-bit mode. Which is interesting. So 64-bit, theoretically, it should be running better, smoother, faster, if it was running at all correctly. I mean, what's the advantage? Of, I mean, I'm a bit well, fuzzy it, in the whole... 64-bit 64, is an addressing space issue, so it actually allows you to access addressing more memory and therefore, theoretically, um, less swapping and just generally... So it's a, we are okay. at the cusp of 64-ness, and uh, in this particular case, in 64-bit mode, to quote Jeff User, I'm stunned that this got through Apple's own Q&A QC mm. process. In okay. 32-bit mode, uh, it's good. But look, I think it is a really good thing. Don't get me wrong. I think all the yeah. improvements are great. But if you're at all untechnical, please wait till version 1. or 3.1. And if you are technical, then just take heed of what we've just said. Because, like, you know, I mean... Quite frankly, anything happens in my photo library, I've got it backed up, of course, with sure. uh, but it would still be a monumental issue Absolutely. for me. It's like having a house fire. I mean, yeah. everything that I kind of liked about Lightroom and Lightroom 2 and 3 Beta, they've put into here the whole... I loved how Lightroom immediately opened up on two monitors, spanning across two monitors was brilliant. The whole presets thing was really great. They seem to have addressed all that. They're yeah. all looking With the really faces good. thing, you can actually turn the faces off if it's freaking yeah, out. Yeah, the face is a bit weird. I'm, I mean, I I've think got it in the iPhoto, but... Well, see, my problem... It's also a bit embarrassing sometimes when the photo of your dad comes up and it says, is this Jason? Yeah, go, the opposite happened. My no. wife, it started flagging my daughter. Is my daughter, you know, my wife's name? And, of course, my wife thought that was brilliant because <laughs> 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 she looks the same as her daughter. Hey, um, mm. one thing I was going to say, though, is that uh, the thing about Aperture, it, it is really cool to to use and to do and stuff. Um, I guess the thing that is uh, really interested this podcast, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring it up, is that it now yes. takes the movie files off your. Um, so prior to this, you would load it up and say, "Oh, there are other files on this." Yeah, card. sorry about that. Do you want to stick them somewhere? And you'd go, "Yeah, on the desktop somewhere." Yeah. Now it'll take those into your Aperture Library, which is both brilliant and, secondly, frightening as all get out because of the uh, the ability to produce ginormous aperture um, libraries, hence the 64-bit. Yeah. When well, you can't do anything on them with them once they're in, you no, can't you can, do anything. you can trim them. You can trim them, yeah. yeah but you can't do any... There's nothing, you can't do any sort of colour. But or it is nice to have a, a management tool oh, for absolutely. those clips. To have if you're a wedding there. photographer, yeah. I can imagine you could really want to hear all the clips that I shot in the one place, and then I can, when that job is over, yeah. I will archive that one project, and if I ever come back three years from now for something, we can do something. Absolutely. Um, which I think... I think is pretty much the end of the news. Uh, pretty much, uh, yeah. Other than I guess we should now swing to uh, Red Day. Um, so why don't we go ahead and, uh, because we had Jeff there, uh, cross over to Jeff and then you and I can have a chat with it about it afterwards.
So somebody that was actually there was our own Jeff Huser, who's just come back from Red Day in Los Angeles. Uh, he's uh, decided to break himself away from looking at the Winter Olympics to come and talk to us. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Mike. How are you? So it seems to me the big news is, or perhaps from, from an outsider's point of view, the big news is the uh, new MR or .MR metadata format. Can you explain what that is? Well, um, they called it RedMD and the file format is .RMD. And actually, I would say that from my standpoint, this was the most exciting thing for the day. Um, remember we did the podcast with Technicolor over an FX Guide. We talked about, you know, putting your data on an SR tape and then you have a Luther box and you have a separate file that travels along with it. And, you know, there's paper script notes and all that kind of stuff. Basically, what Red's trying to do is this is going to be Red metadata and it will be, um, an expandable, growing, you know, sidecar file, a .rmd file. Basically, think of it. I asked Graham if it was going to replace the RSX file, and he said the RSX file was always intended for his own use to kind of, you know, pop something into Red Alert, save a setting, and then call it up again later so he could compare it. Um, and this is really the the big brother of that. With, you know, you could put production notes in there. Um, basically, oh, so, think- so the difference between it and the metadata that's already embedded in an R3D file is that this uh, metadata file we can write to. This would be an external file that would design to be a living document. So it could contain your RSX type information, but it would also contain, um, you know, shot shot notes, lens notes, uh, you know, circle takes could be in there. They showed an example of that idea, you know. But just as the meta, see, the, the moment the metadata lives in the R3D file. So right. this, this is sort of an addition to the R3D file. That'll Correct. still have metadata in it, presumably from like the, you know, settings from the camera. So this would be like an additional metadata bucket that goes along with it? Right. 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 Because you could actually write into it. Okay. And now that would let me do what? I could uh, use that to... I heard something, and I don't know if this is right, that I could actually take something and load it back on the red one, and then it would actually sort of bake that in. Is that right? Well, they showed... Okay. um, Michael Chiono from uh, Lightiron, is it? Could be, yep. Um, anyway, he was he did the whole presentation at one point, and he showed they had a red one on cam- on stage with very low light, mostly backlit, uh, the front row of the stage, and he recorded a little RSX, a little um, you know footage on an MX sensor uh, onto a hard drive, unmounted the hard drive, walked across the stage to a Mac with a red rocket card in it, put the you know plugged the um, drive in, called it up in Red CineX, and set a look. And then wrote that to an SD card, walked it back across the stage, put it in the Red camera, and loaded that look. And then on the monitor, you could see that the settings that he had just set his look for were now loaded into the camera. But they're not baked in, in the sense that they're still they're not just... not baked a, in. Just, no. Basically. So it's, it's, um, it's being able to set up a look, load that in the camera... Because that's something that was discussed from even from day one, being able to just make a look, load up the camera and have that look applied. Right. And they explained that the whole new color science stuff, the new color space, you know, the red color, red gamma, um, basically just means that you get a the same benefits as if it was, for example, red log in terms of you're not throwing away data. You're not destroying, you're not, um, you know, in the color space, you're not throwing that away. 
you can still recover the the low lights, you know, the low line data, and you can still you know adjust things. But it's prettier to look at. You know, it's better to look at. You know, look at a log file. You're kind of like, oh god, you know, that washed out thing. Don't make me look at that. Hmm. Um, or you have to use a LUT or something. This is that's the design between that and the new color science. So the idea is this would give you a way to put a look on top of that, I guess, and uh, load it into the camera. And then, then it would be recorded into the metadata when you shot it, I guess. And then it would come over to Red Alert, right? You know, Red Cine, right? Or um, I'm sorry, Red, Red, Red Cine X, X yeah. Red Cine X, uh, with that already baked in from the shoot, but not baked in in terms of destructive. Hmm. Well, now changing to the sensor, they were showing the MX, and I believe that they were showing that the rolling shutter has been greatly improved. Because um, obviously, no, in they the didn't initial... mention rolling shutter at all. Oh, really? Because there were some not reports on uh, on Red User that uh, at one of the sessions today. Uh, they were discussing that it was a 30 uh, millisecond read-write time for hmm. for crossing the line, and that's now down at about 8.7, 8.9 on the Mysterium, but the Mysterium X is taking that down to a 5 millisecond read-write time. Now, film effectively has uh, a rolling shutter of about 4 milliseconds, so we're basically in Mysterium X seeing dramatically reduced uh, rolling shutter, and that would definitely tie with what we've seen here in Sydney. Right, the... Um it didn't come up in our session. Now, the way the session was structured was there was an hour presentation with Jim uh, and, and Michael um, Cioni, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they kind of cut us free for, I guess, an hour, and we got to look at prototypes. You know, not, they weren't working. It was the same as any other trade show. You know, they were the same. You know, you could hold a scarlet body in your hand, and you could, you could look under glass at the other stuff, and you could look at an epic body. Um, and then they had Lucas Wilson was there, for example. He was showing uh, Scratch with two red rocket cards in it, doing stereo in real time. Wow. Um, they had another guy there doing um, showing Apple Color Workflow. And they had somebody else showing some other workflow. And then they had a Pablo there in the room with the projector. They had, Oh, the projector. So it's some new Sony projector. T240 is what I wrote down, but I don't think that's complete. Um, and Jim could not have gone on more about this projector. He said, look, we thought we knew what 4K was. This changed our whole perception. This is so beautiful. Hmm. So then it was right. And uh, so they showed, they showed the original red reel, first of all, use it through that new projector. Um, and afterward, he said that that was uh, 15 megabytes per second, off, including uh, audio red off Red Ray. Off red, ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, red Ray, which always was followed by the term, by the words, that product name is changing. Um. And then they showed a reel that was shot on the MX sensor. And Jared was asked after that if there was any noise reduction on that reel. And he said, not, not any on that reel. There was nothing. So I presume at that time you also got to look at the uh, NATO rails rig under glass. Um, I didn't get near it. I could not. There were, you know, everybody kind of crowded around that area. Uh, I saw glimpses of it, but. Uh, I didn't get a chance to get close enough or get pictures or anything. I know there's a lot on the web. I'm sure yeah. some people took some. It's but, an, it's uh, an, yeah, an amazing problem for us here in Sydney, of course, trying to order sniper um, gear yes. with our strict gun laws. Um, I just wait to see how that rolls. That's um, right. He did show something really interesting, though. Um, Jim kind of got on a roll and said that a couple of days ago they shot some zone charts. So they showed a three-way split screen of a zone chart on that 4K projector. And on the far left was the 5D Mark II. And the middle was an F35. And on the right was the MX sensor. And it was stunning to see the difference. Um, 
Jim did a very nice elaborate speech about, you know, obviously line skipping, discount that. The F-35 looked very nice, but when you started looking closely, you started noticing that the circle as it gets, you know, the smaller and smaller rings, um, you know, a good, you know, third being generous uh, is pretty much mush. You know, it's just a gray wash. Whereas on the MX, I mean, you're looking at, you got fine detail everywhere. It's amazing actually how strong the MX is looking, isn't it? Because we all assumed that um, we'd want to go straight to uh, Epic or Scarlet before we'd really see any major benefit. But putting the uh, the MX Red One out there has really shown that that initial Red One has, still has some really good legs. Right, right. It, it was it was that's absolutely the case. I mean, it, it was pretty impressive. Um, the other thing is that that round trip thing that I was talking about where they save the look to the SD card and then put it back in the camera. Yes. When they launched that software, I noticed that it was build 135, which I think we're on 104 as we record this today, which probably will change before we stop recording it. <laughs> Although probably not today because everybody was there. So let's, so let's ask the, uh, the, the $64,000 question is, when will we see Scarlet and Epic? Any indication on either the tattoo, the Scarlet or the Epic delivery dates? Okay. At the end, so the third hour was Q&A, and I got to respect a company that is willing to sit 200 people in the middle of Hollywood three times on a Saturday afternoon um, and let them ask any question they want. Um, you know, and they're, it's their thing, so they're free to say we won't answer that. But generally, they answered pretty much everything. Um, in terms of the tattoo and the scarlet, um, tattoo, they originally had targeted 100 people is what they had thought they would do in the tattoo program. But Jim said they sat down and did some calculations a couple of different ways. And first of all, they decided that the cost of doing that was just too high, that that's just a big number. It's a lot of production. Um, and he, he felt like the sample was too big, like it was more than they needed. Um, that So they've decided to restrict the tattoo program to 20, around 20 is what he said. I know right. you're hoping for 22 in there. Uh, well, yes, but the 20 may actually include us, given that right. uh, the first six are actually gyms. Oh, that's true. That's true. Although he did say that some of those would be going to people like, you know, Peter Jackson. So we, we'll live with cross fingers, obviously. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, his big thing was he said that, you know, the market is not as patient now. Now they are known to be delivering working cameras and they need to continue delivering working cameras and, you know, those first 20 people are going to be doing the arrows in the back, you know, seeing what's wrong and putting the camera through its paces. And, you know, he said, hopefully we can find it. Oh, we don't find some, you know, two cameras out of that 20 have a serious problem of a physical nature that we have to go, you know, make a major change. But, you know, that's, they, they, they want to ship a finished camera. And he, he was get, when he pushed, he was guessed that it would be about a month or two after the tattoos go out. He was hoping that they would start into full production. Right. So, so let me just get that, that straight. The, um, the tattoo's reduced. The tattoo's are going to roll out soon, but we don't know exactly when. Right. And then Correct. Epic is still obviously next in line um, uh, for going through the, the general sort of production run of um, moving from beta to release to the various staged programs. And right. And then somebody asked about the Scarlet and if there would be a wait list. For Epic and Scarlet, but particularly it was kind of focused on Scarlet. And Jim said that he'll have a fit if Epic and Scarlet are not shipping by summer, that they are going to do volume production 
and that they're not expecting to have to do wait lists, that they're expecting to have them in quantity and get them out to people when, as soon as they're ready to get out to people. So tell me, when you in America talk about the summer, what would be the general months that people would be referring to? Well, I would say summer to me probably starts in June and ends in September, okay. August, September. So June, July, August, I would think, would be the main summer months. Okay. So so it's I'm probably going to be the end of those months, um, but uh, who knows? If I was a betting man, I'd say yes. I'd say you're talking... I don't know. You know, I don't know. These guys are obviously, you know, the MX stuff is going really, really well. And, you know, it's obvious that we've seen we've seen physical mock-ups of the Epic and the Scarlet now for, what, three different trade shows and different... I think the interesting know. thing is that the MX uh, work that's being done with the Red One is effectively some kind of alpha for the Epic. You know, it's, uh, it's really a lot of stuff that you would have to solve for Epic is getting solved with MX. It's, it's a definite leg up. Well, they were talking about the fact that the Mysterium sensor is on build 21 right now, I guess, in the, in the real world. The MX is on build 30. The regular non-MX will eventually get 30, or the features that are in 30, but they're not there yet. Um, and he said the major difference, this was Stuart talking, the major difference is the GUI for histograms. They've reworked the exposure. The exposure, I guess, was always kind of the, the histogram and everything. The histograms... Every, a lot of stuff was being based on RGB values instead of on the raw sensor data. So they've been really pushed to, they wanted to move more of the metering, histogramming, you know, warning things to the raw. Because really, if it's not clipped on the raw, it's not clipped, but it could be clipped on the RGB. So they explained quite a long, they had a little talk about that, about they spent a lot of time reworking the uh, exposure system in the whole camera, the whole way the histograms are being calculated the way that the um, clipping indicators are. I guess to the left of the histogram, there's a red bar. You, I, I'm not as familiar with this, so I don't know how much of this is new. And uh, the higher that gets, if it's off, you're fine. If it starts lighting up and get bigger and taller, it, it means your noise floor is being, you know, you're starting to introduce noise. Uh, on the right side, there's a similar indicator that shows clipping. So the basic is if neither of them are lit, you're golden. You're ready to go. And then there's three traffic lights that are now going to be in the raw domain that used to be in the RGB domain. Okay, that's good information. Yeah, and then false color um, overlays got completely reworked. There's now a purple and red indicator that show where image clips are. And he also said they spent most of their time just really making sure that... I guess there's always been a disparity between light meter on a set versus the histogram and kind of where you rate the camera and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So... um, They've really spent a lot of time making it so there's a very intuitive alignment now between the what you would see with a meter and what you see on the on the displays there. So that's good. He talked a bit about this ASA in that conversation about the sweet spot. Um, you know, always that, that trying to figure out the best, least noise and the best highlight protection. Um, Jim said for him, he's been finding the camera at 800 is kind of the perfect compromise of those things, the perfect sweet spot to give you the least noise, but also protect for highlights. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we were used to 250 uh, ISO and then 500 on, you, know, you get Kodak 500D and and uh, that would be a kind of a sort of a standard. Um, when we came to the Red One, it was 320, but that was so close to 250 that I used to definitely tell DOPs 250. Now, 800 is actually, if that makes, if this is going to make any sense, 800 is actually sort of further away from 500 than 320 is away from, from 250. Um, 
because mm-hmm. it's really uh, you know a full half a stop difference. And so I'm wondering whether we'll still see DOPs uh, sort of falling back to rating it at 500 because that's what they're used to, or whether they will actually rate it at 800. And it's well, he was saying that Soderbergh but... said a thousand. He's been he's been reporting back that he's been finding a thousand to be this, what he considers the sweet spot. Because if it was a thousand, then um, then that's really significant because it's nearly nearly but not quite two stops over how much they rated the, uh, the the original red one. I mean, they had a set there with a person sitting at a desk, and it was completely lit by candles. I mean, there were like maybe you know five candles on the desk and a couple candles behind and a few candles in the front and. You know, I saw that just as I was leaving on the 4K projector through the Pablo, and man. And I think they said they were rating that at a thousand. Let me see if I have that in my notes. I don't remember what they were rating that at, but it was it was beautiful. I mean, it was like, you know, as a stills guy and used to the kind of where I want to be on my Nikon. You know, I'm kind of like, wow. You know, when I go to 800 on my Nikon, I'm happy, but I'm you know if it's outside, I'm fine. Um, but in low light, uh, you know, 800 is fine, but it's, it, you're definitely starting to see it and you're not definitely seeing anything in the, uh, in this. Hmm. Yeah. Well, now what was the general mood of the crowd as it were? Was everybody, uh, just joyously happy or was there any frustration over deliveries or what was, the no, story? everybody was, everybody was happy. Everybody so was generally positive. It was a very much a crowd in his corner, you know, um, I wouldn't, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, very much so. I didn't hear anybody grumbling about anything, really. Well, that's terrific. Now, is there anything else you, I haven't Let me run through my notes here. Um, The other thing in that new build of Red City X is the ability to, they they showed a script that could take an EDL and parse it into a script that could deliver Red City X, the um, Red City X could get a cut list, basically. And you could then, on the timeline, call up those R3Ds according to that EDL. Right. That was pretty cool. Um, let's see. The Expect the plug-in for Final Cut that supports the MX in a few weeks. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that zone plate I was talking about, somebody asked what was used for that. It was Red Code 42. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. You know, I, I got to just say for myself that just that that are that are the Q and A was very nice and interesting, and I just really give them a lot of credit for doing that. Oh, you mentioned that Red Cine X is going to have third party um, extensibility and plugins, and you know, I guess somehow interfacing to it. And there's been a lot of interest. And Jim said, if we knew the companies were interested, we'd be surprised. Um, he's convinced that their 4K sauce for this Red Ray to be named something else later is. Just they have the sauce. Basically, he's, he's just said we've got it. You know, fifteen megabytes per second, um, and he said he's convinced that their ASIC will be in set top boxes in the future, and that uh, the 1080 was just not big enough jump from standard def. That it was a good jump, but you know, it wasn't big enough. And this is where the future needs to be. Hmm, that's interesting. Of course, when you get a really good cheap projector, I mean, there's nothing wrong with uh, the great Sony's, but they they're very bulky and and very expensive. Uh, oh yeah, we see- he mentioned he mentioned a whole slew of people doing projectors and plasma displays that are now coming from different manufacturers that do 4K, and also the Epson one that's being targeted for the home market. So I mean, I basically look at this as I really do just think that Jim is way ahead of the curve. Not even way ahead; he's ahead of the curve. You know, he's really got. Um, He's really got a mantra of 4K. He's had it since day one, and now it's starting to become more and more real. And as he does 
this, as you've seen in the red uh, red user stuff, the uh, you know him charting the uh, difference between film and different sensors at their resolution. Um, you know they've definitely got the right camera, and now they've got this delivery system with the red ray something to be named later. Um, you know they they really really are poised to make a big difference all the way around. Because in the early days, they were actually talking about them getting into monitors and projectors. Um, and I think that's probably no longer the case. I certainly don't get that sense if that's the case. I, I mean, think they that they're probably seeing that other people are, you know, quickly moving up to provide, and they can provide that. So why do why should Red do it, if that makes sense? You know, somebody else can when do I, it. Yeah, when he rattled off the list of people doing projectors, I was like, why would you want to get into that space? I mean, mm. it was, you know... Christie and Sony and you name it. I mean, they were. I think he rattled off like seven company names, some of which I've heard of, some of which I haven't. All doing 4K projectors. So yeah, I can't imagine that they would. But um, oh, uh, speaking of Red Ray, uh, they, somebody did ask, how do you author that? How do you record to Red Ray? And Jim said that originally they had expected at 10 megabits per second, but that they decided that that required you to fiddle and analyze scenes and do all this stuff. And they found that at 15 megabits, it's a one-button solution. So the first thing we're going to see it in is Red Cine X. There's going to be an export option in Red Cine X for it. And then from there, there'll be other options for that, I'm sure. Uh, two things I know you and I will be very interested in that he talked about. Um, somebody asked a question for visual effects. Um, is there any way that we could take, like we saw them using an EDL to feed Red Cine X, would there be a way to put out truncated R3Ds? Basically, the question was, look, I got Nuke, and I can read R3D files, and I want to work with the R3D files directly instead of some you know, DPX flavor that gets spit out of it. I want the access to the whole thing. But there's no way for me to do that because I can't keep all the R3Ds on the system. So the, thought, you know, the question was, can I get truncated um, R3Ds that match up to the you – know, basically, the idea would be that yep. in um, – yeah, because, they, in because, DI, they would give you that cut list. You yeah, because you run a take and it runs for five minutes and I just need 10 seconds out of the middle of it and I can't at the moment trim an R3D. Is that what you're referring to? Yep. And they said, yes, soon. Oh. It's on the list. Wow, and that would be huge. Because at now, the moment, you know, no soon. one can write an R3D file but in a camera. So yeah. There's, there's just no way to make an R3D unless you're in a camera. Now, the second that you can write an R3D, yeah, that's that's huge at two levels. Firstly, that truncated one, and then, of course, it opens the door to somebody else uh, being able to write an R3D in some way, shape, or form. Yes. I mean, I started thinking about that even in the DI process. I mean, would that be a good format to write back out somehow from you know, the DI? Because right now, most of that stuff's going out to... TPX files, I would assume. Well, imagine a workflow where you got footage in uh, to Final Cut, you trimmed it, you color corrected it over in, um, uh, you know, color, came back and then said, okay, export a R3D of all of this, and now you'd have one R3D of the cut, um, which would be just unbelievable. It would be amazing. Um, the other thing that I thought you and I would both go very happy about was um, somebody asked with the whole DSMC system, what should still photographers expect? And I can't remember who said it, but they said basically everybody on this stage is a camera geek. So expect everything. They said you want, you know, time lapse, uh, you know, HDR, uh, you name it. I mean, they basically said if you can do it on a stills camera, you know, that's, we, we all want that too. So expect everything. 
that will be really interesting because um, it's a big, big ask to match Canon and Nikon for stills performance, especially in focus. Did they mention at all the uh, face tracking stuff? Because that is, again, particularly interesting. Nope, didn't mention that. And the other one that I think is really interesting, and maybe again didn't mention it, but there was a, in the list of features, there was an HDR mode, and I'm dying to hear what that is. Yeah, I know. I, I do too. I still, I still want to know what that is. Yep, not talking about that. They didn't anyway today. Nobody asked about that. Um, and just overall, I mean, that's pretty much my notes. The uh, Overall, somebody did say this is quite the clubhouse, you know, the whole Red Studios there. And uh, Jim said, you know, it's it, they're really looking forward to um, – to doing it, he explained that they're going to take over stage four on a permanent basis, which is where this meeting was held. Um, and it's a large stage. It was split in half by a curtain. One half was demo area and one half was this very large screen with a 4, 4K projector. And that is staying put. That's going to be there for them to demo full, all the time. Anytime they want to, they can pop in there and show 4K on this giant screen. Um, they're going to take the building just north of that and turn it into a store and a quick service area for Red. And then the rest of the complex, uh, other stages and all that, will remain just as they were under Renmar. They'll be rented and shows will be in there and just like anything else. Hmm. But that's good. Yeah, It's a great location. It's right in the middle of, you know, it's Coenga and uh, I don't know where it is. It's right over in Hollywood, you know, right? Not too far from where Encore is and, you know, that whole, the main area there. Yeah, I've often been interested to find out whether or not uh, that'll affect the Red Ranch plan, whether the Red Ranch is... Uh, well, I read no. I read that that was still absolutely still in the plans. Hmm. So. Well, of course, if they can grow to the level of a Nikon, um, which is a big ask in one sense, but they'd be bridging two markets to do it. They wouldn't need to out Nikon, Nikon in just stills. They could you know, maybe match a Nikon by being both a video and stills company. You know, right. it wouldn't surprise me that Nikon had a facility in, you know, outside Vegas and another one in LA and stuff. That's that all would, you know, ring fairly true, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, I, I for me, I think the most exciting thing of the day was the whole idea of this, this. Uh, you know, I, I guess a light bulb went on for me that just went. You know, everybody else in this space is chasing <sighs> workflow that I find onerous you know moving videotape or data that then gets transferred to moving videotape from a smaller pack or something i i mean the whole thing is just it seems very antiquated to me compared to here's your file oh and here's your metadata that goes along with it right there in the same folder and you want to add to that metadata to put your shot notes your script notes and that just travels right along with it and i i don't know i mean to me it's just workflow wise it just makes so much sense and obviously, you know, we've we've worked with it, and we know how it works, and we 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 have no problems with that. But you know, as this thing keeps developing, though, you just start going, "Wow, you know, this is just this is a real solid system." And I, I gotta, you know, somebody made the comment to Jim that I think you've surpassed film, and he just he smiled. I mean, you know, I think that what I saw on that screen was beautiful. See, I'm of the opinion fairly heavily that you don't need to be better than film; you just need to be so darn close to it that it's actually the convenience of shooting digitally overtakes. You know, Absolutely. Because it, yeah, but I think we passed that a year and a half, maybe two years ago. I think that we're now at a point where, you know, now we're starting to see things in the camera. I mean, the stuff I'm seeing coming out of that camera at 800, 1,000 ASA, you couldn't get on film because in order to do it, you know, you'd have to add so much grain to the picture. 
and getting these just beautifully clean pictures at these lower light levels is, is amazing. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. That was fantastic. That was uh, some very interesting stuff in there, particularly yeah. the you know the uh, tattoo reduction of the re- tattoo program. I guess. Yes. Yes. Though it is promising to know that, as Jeff said, that they expect to only be a month or so after that they go into the phased release, and yeah. also that when yeah. they hit Scarlet, they expect to ship in quantity and not necessarily have queues because they will actually be able to deliver to demand but i mean yeah what is demand i mean it's very hard to know isn't it i mean what will the actual demand be for those like, you know oh, how well. i just also want to thank danielle who listens to this podcast from uh, brisbane um because he was um uh gonna do a cross for us um and he didn't have to because jeff obviously did it but uh right. danielle was obviously over there for red day and i just want to thank him publicly because he was stood by if jeff was unavailable to give us a feedback because we uh, we didn't want to miss Red Day. I think they are pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. You've got some photos, including a couple Jeff took outside the event uh, coming up in the show notes. Yep, that's right. I've got a few off Red users, so I'll definitely have to uh, credit uh, the right person who posted them. Thank you. There's some fantastic shots from, from the other day, mainly of um, a lot more on uh, the whole uh, Picatinny rail system and the uh, bipod and, uh, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of that sort of mounting system, which was really interesting, including what looks like... A, like some sort of follow focus wheel on 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 a, a bipod, but I'm not sure what that is. We have to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, on I mean, one. as Jeff said, it was under glass, as so some of these pictures indicate, yeah. and he didn't really get to it. That's why we thought we'd include the photos in the show notes. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that um, this is a really interesting system. As I joked with Jeff, I have no idea how we're going to get it in this country. I, I, excuse me, I'd like some sniper <laughs> gear, please. Um, when it's an offence in this country to carry a wooden toy gun, handgun. That, that is a, a, a serious offence, like yeah. not like a five-buck <clears throat> fine, like a really serious offence to have anything even looks like a prop gun yeah. unless you're licensed. To yes. get sniper gear is just... Yeah, we don't have the to right imagine. to bear arms, nor do we want We it. have no right to bear anything. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, we're going to have to keep moving because we've got this terrific interview coming up, and so I want to thank Jeff, and, um, yep, thanks, and man. That's uh, cool. we look forward to... Being able to discuss tattoo, hopefully, mm. when it uh, comes out, and of course, um, I did want to actually before we leave that, can I just get back to the um, MX mm. because um, I, I actually didn't mention any of the initial things that we were noticing on the MX ourselves, and uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to flag um, for, for starters. Uh, I guess it's a, almost a philosophical question, but in the camera, there's a um, little histogram at the bottom of the picture which uh you'd all know mm. left and right of that is a tiny little indicator a bit like uh, you would have about the width of the traffic lights um as just a vertical uh bar mm. so i guess to use an analogy it would be like an audio meter you know that sort of thing that just goes straight up and down um there's a little one on the left a little one on the right now the thing about that is that uh that is interestingly going to show you a clip or a crush in what's coming off the raw files, while the histogram is iOS ISO dependent. Yeah. In other words, if I was to to change the sensitivity of the ISO way up, it would obviously histogram slam to the right, but that indicator may not go off because, yeah. in fact, at 800, it's not actually in the clip. Yeah, so you could push your ISO all the way up and have an almost quite blown-out image, yet that right-hand highlight indicator wouldn't be really pinging at all. 
Yeah. And the other thing I think that's interesting, and this is why I'm getting to a philosophical point, is that um, as far as I can tell from our initial testing, and uh, after my aperture comments, I'm flagging that initial testing, we've shot side by side uh, the same image and we've adjusted, we've, you know, adjusted the exposure on the lens. Mm. And then what we've done is we've pushed that exposure in, um, in Red Cine X. Now, by then taking the output of that and comparing them in Photoshop with an exact difference mat, we can find mathematically no difference between an ISO adjustment and a flut adjustment. So if I did a two-stop flut adjustment, which would be 2.0, that would be absolutely equivalent to changing two stops on the ISO when we output those modified files into Photoshop and then compare them as uh, two TIFFs. Now, if I did the exposure, that would be slightly different, but I'm talking about the flut to the ISO, yeah. which brings me to this point. is Flut can be adjusted in 0.1 increments. So to get from 0 to 2, I go up, obviously, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.0, et cetera, right up to uh, the 20 uh, increments. And ISO jumps that in two steps. In other words, it can only go halfway in one exposure mm. point and then the second. What What is the kind of relevancy of ISO moving forward? Yeah, I mean, essentially, when your ISO is a you know, essentially a metadata thing and you it doesn't in any way affect the sensitivity of the the the, the chip, even the older chip, any chip. It essentially it's all you know, the ISO, you're not putting gain in, it's not injecting anything, it's not changing the raw signal. It's it's like, you know, if as long as you're not essentially you can look at these two red indicators and the bottom and the top of the um uh, histogram and just as long as you're not in the red on either side essentially you can you're going to be able to get a but on the actual main screen it clearly indicates what the iso is which is fine i don't have yeah. a problem with that I, I just think that i'm increasingly going to be using the flut control not the iso control to have a look at what this might look at at a slightly different sensitivity because i have no problem with jumping around a stop in uh how the camera is so yeah. the video village looks fine so I might clearly show you, say, 500 when it'd be rated 800 or even show you, um, you know, 1200 or something. But I don't have any problem with doing that. Um, but I would only know that I've done that if I went into the menus because it's not immediately apparent at the main menu level on the LCD screen that mm. there's a flood of two exposure points affecting the video village feed. It's a minor point, but I'm just thinking with the move to ISO no longer, in my opinion, being as interesting a concept, yeah. maybe we were going to look at the point where we swap that ISO reading, which at the moment you know, is like the default button on the top left, yeah. to a flat button. But, you, I mean, the flut has such fine and such small control. Yeah, I mean... What, you know, I mean I, that I, the ISO can vary so much more widely yeah, above The ISO just that. thumps, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, I, I, so I just think, you know, with... Maybe, maybe you guys have an, a, an answer to this, and I'd love to hear it, why I should care about ISO. But my current feeling is I would dial in 800, factory-recommended ISO on this camera, and we haven't had a chance to do our own testing, but I know Sottenberg apparently is doing it at 1,000, mm -hmm. and... Um, but anyway, uh, and then I would just tweak the the flut, and I'd be quite happy with that, and mm. um, I would live with that. And if that is the case, you know, as I say, why do I care about ISO other than setting up my light meter um, for an external reading? If I'm doing external readings off light meters, yeah, I guess so. I mean, your light meter is really more for just for getting the ratio of your lighting right and your ratio of your key fill, backlight, etc. But you know, it's, how it has very started to have very little relevance to what you actually set on the camera. Or I wonder what. if someone would make a light meter that would. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you just set your light meter at eight hundred, yeah. and that would sort of tell you where you're at. But yeah, um, yeah anyway. So uh, mm. if you've got something, some insight I'm missing, um, and I'm free to admit I'm not, you know, 
I, I didn't come up through the camera department. But I mean, if I was that wrong, I'd expect Jace to. You, yeah, you no. Look, it's it's drifting into becoming a bit of an outdated, you know, concept. concept essentially, when you've got an, an uh, you've got a uh, a sensor that's essentially quite happy anywhere from you know 100 ASA down to you know to to a couple of thousand. It's you know, I think it's yeah, gradually going to drift away into obscurity. Well, now shall we do gear after your interview or before? Let's do gear after the interview, and then okay. people. People can so just to, so this is a fabulous interview. It is uh, quite long, um, and we'll, at the end of that, we'll do gear, which will be covering uh, Steadicam and also some uh, cute iPhone plugins. But let's discuss that interview now. And, and Jason, I think that um, that uh, Terminator Four or the last one was in fact shot on film, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's all shot. Right, all because shot obviously television. Shane's really interested in uh, in digital SLR. Capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. He's you know really taken the bull by the horns, and it's uh, got some really uh, in, unusual, interesting things to say about his cocktail for making the film look on, on 5D, and his preferences for cameras and for uh, frame rates. And um, he's you know very very happy with 8-bit color space, and you know and for some uh, what, obviously what I was really interested in hearing from him was uh, uh, how someone who has grown up with that uh, background. Um, can so fully embrace something with you know with compromises. Okay, well uh, let's uh, let's see that now. Well, Shane, firstly, thanks for taking time to chat today. I'm a huge fan of your work. I thought Drumline in particular looked fantastic, and of course T4 is uh, an outstanding piece of work. So yeah, look, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm going to jump straight into the DSLR thing. Obviously, there's compromises ergonomically and operationally with DSLRs, but for most of the indie crowd, of course, they're all willing to work around all that stuff to get that big budget look. What makes someone who's grown up with film and that lives and breathes that big budget look, what lets you see past that and choose DSLRs when possibly the budget would let you choose anything? Well, I mean, I kind of stumbled into this thing. Uh, I was asked uh, by Mick G to do these Terminator webisodes and uh, they were like this alternative marketing campaign for Warner Brothers and they were for all like the fanboys to uh, do these little three minute segments that were going to go on YouTube and they were like cliffhangers so you know nine weeks prior to the release of Terminator Salvation you know you got a cliffhanger every week and the whole concept was a helmet cam that these, you know, tech com guys that were a recon team sent out to find Skynet's communication stronghold. Uh, they were, you know, uh, broadcasting back to base via a helmet cam. So I was at this little ASC mixer at Sammy's camera that they had sponsored to kind of release this camera to uh, the ASC and have them kind of look at it and see what they thought. Well, I walked in there, put the camera in my hand, panned the thing around and bought the thing. And I was the only one that bought the thing that day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I just, I was like, oh my God, this is going to change everything. Yeah. And, you know, when you started to mount this thing in somebody's hand and somebody on somebody's head and the cinematic quality that started to come off this camera, I was like, all right, the paradigm is shift. This is game over. And so then that was the genesis, right? And 
so through doing these webisodes, I was working with this company called the Bandito Brothers. And they're uh, two guys who started this company. They're both stunt guys uh, with incredible talent and smart as hell. And they just, uh, you know, formed this company two and a half years ago. And they had this idea for a movie. And after seeing the images that I was delivering on this Terminator thing, they asked me to shoot the film. And, you know, it, it was funny because, you know, I thought I was going to be on this thing for like two and a half weeks. I was like, you know, this sounds ridiculous. You know, I got the script, but, you know, how are they going to pull this thing off? You know, we got real Navy SEALs being actors. I don't know. I'll give it two and a half weeks, right? Well, this is them storming the motor yacht. Yes. Right. That was like a two minute segment out of the thing. I shot that whole sequence that you saw and that was an abbreviated sequence. It's five minutes long. I shot that thing in a day. Wow. That is the power of this platform. Yeah. It's like 220 some odd setups in 12 and a half hours on the water. Which complicates everything. Oh, yeah. That, that kind of stuff is unheard of. So I, you know, my idea and thought process you know when they said we want to do this movie we were like i was like my god if we can do this like call of duty where we put the person first person in the shooter you know he becomes the navy seal and moves and and but we do it in a way that's very visceral and inside the game and action oriented and but you still get back wide and see the scope and i was like oh my god this could be revolutionary <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of the thrill of the Call of Duty thing. It's very filmic and very immersive. Exactly. So that was how I started. So I, again, you know, really just trying to fight my th way through this, you know, technology, which was, you know, a two and a half pound still camera. Well, how do you make this thing into making, you know, to be able to make a movie? So, you know, for three months, I was literally punched in the face, hit in the head with a shovel, buried alive every day, you know, with this technology. And I got myself up, brushed myself off, you know, rubbed my head from the nub that was on my skull and, you know, forged ahead. And, you know, after about three months, I cracked it. Once I cracked it, we went from shooting a hybrid of film and HD to shooting all HD, all HD, all DSLR. Right. And that's what when it just all started to, you know, happen for me. I was like, you know, it, it just you towards the end of the movie, when you start to see our images, we're firing on all 12 cylinders. It is just oh, it's awesome where a lot of people came to uh, know your name was the Navy SEALs storming the motor yacht and there was a mix of formats there. You had stabilized chopper mounts and F950s and a whole ton of gear and, and 35 mil all mixed yeah. together. This is still the same project continuing on. Now you've moved all the way on to DSLRs for it. Yes, correct. Uh, you know, we finally finished uh, January 12th in a nuclear sub that, uh, you know, I, I got in in Key West and uh, two and a half days later, I'm off the Horn of Africa. <laughs> so, 
They'd be uh, absolutely born to work inside the constraints of a sub, I guess. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, what we were able to pull off and, you know, lighting wise using the, you know, we were shooting uh, the 1D. I had just gotten two of those to, to be able to take advantage of the low light and the sub for all the night ops. And, uh, you know, I was at 3200 ISO. Uh, all the gauges came to life. It looked like the Starship Enterprise, you know, and the, the diver on watch, you know, is at the helm. And, you know, we do this whole sequence where he's like, dive to 160 feet. And the guy's like, dive, dive. I mean, it's straight out of the movies, you know, and the dive down under the ocean. It was so cool. So you were really submerging. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did all of it. We were, we were, I think we were like at 160 feet most of the time. They said they got in, you know, they, they can get down in these depths and they hook onto the current and, you know, the speeds that this 600-foot sub can go just, well, it's all classified, but it will boggle your mind. <laughs> so the, the Hollywood version of that, I guess, would be that you're tethered to a dock and you're running a whole bunch of Jenny cables through, you know, through the ports, or essentially you're on a set because you just can't get in there and can't light and everything. So obviously you've done the complete opposite, gone with a camera that's got an ISO that makes everything look like it's lit like a Hollywood set and, and that's uh, exactly go, out, right. go out for real. Yeah. I mean, you know, I did it on Terminator. You know, John Connor ends up in a sub, you know, after he jumps out at 75 some odd feet and 70 foot swells out of a out of a helicopter. Yeah. And, you know, you know, he lands and comes into lockdown. Well, that was a full set. How did you know, I got to backlight all the gauges, backlight all the monitors, all that stuff to to make it read on film, you know, and the shot that I was doing in this uh, in this movie the navy seal movie is i started high overhead which where it's high overhead in a sub you know it's like eight and a half foot ceiling but i could push the camera all the way up so it felt high you know because it didn't have all the the size of a 35 millimeter and i literally wrapped around him and moved into a close-up as he says dived a one six zero feet you know and it was a techno crane shot but i did it with my hands so it's like all of a sudden you're like injecting a set that you're going to have to build. You know, it's probably 20 to 30 days to build it, labor to do it, all the natural resources being spent, all the camera crew and everything to light it, all the crane and everything. I mean, it's just like massive. And, and we did it an hour and a half. So it's just like you really are able to, you know, you think out of the box and, you know, what you're able to get with this thing is just it's it's so inspiring to me as a filmmaker because, you know, I'm I'm working and delivering shots that I could never imagine before. And it's bridging the gap of like when everyone sees, uh, you know, a animated film, the way the camera moves in that is unbelievable. Well, that's because they're moving it in a computer. Well, this is bridging that gap. We're not in the business of moving mass anymore. So the camera can now move in ways that we've never seen. Yeah. So now we're slowly sliding towards being able to deliver what you see in those beautiful animated movies. So really, I guess the answer to the first original question is the size that frees you. And I guess the ISO that lets you keep it more real and move quick. Yes, you can take a camera that's two and a half pounds and you can build it as big or have it as small as you want. It can ebb and flow to whatever your requirements are. 
that you don't without using film you can go two to three times faster not dealing with the reloads not dealing with the this that other i mean it's a green technology in its own right it recycles everything sticking with this project then let's look at the average package now obviously you've had a chance to evolve it as you've gone along how many cameras you're working with what glass what rigs because obviously one of the trickers with the ergonomics once you strip this camera down really small it's really easy to get a little bit too wobbly quite quickly again thinking out of the box and also just using some uh, some post-production help um what I've done is this. My camera package that we found to be able to roll and keep up with the Navy SEALs was 15 cameras. And those 15 cameras fit with all the support, all the lenses, everything needed in a one-ton cube truck. Wow. Okay? Now, on Terminator, I had 13 cameras, and that fit in a 10-ton truck and a 5-ton slop. Okay, so, you know, you're starting to see how the format is just the, the platform. It's a small footprint. So with anything, when you start to do a small footprint, it echoes throughout all of production. Yeah. Completely. It's not just camera. It affects lighting. It affects grip. It affects transportation. It affects food. I mean, everything. It's a huge ripple effect. Because the camera kind of is the genesis of like, okay, what does it take to make this mass move and all the personnel to do it? Well, now we're taking everything and we're putting it in a one-ton truck instead of what I described before. And now everything starts to, you know, it's reduce. And it makes you be able to react and be nimble and take advantage of serendipity acts that wouldn't necessarily happen. And that's what is so inspirational about this. So the 15 camera package I have is basically what we found would make us as nimble and as small as possible. And what we would do is we would come in the morning and my guys, my uh, elite team would basically build every configuration that we had that the directors and the operators we all liked. And a lot of these configurations were uh, Red Rock rigs that I had kind of taken what, you know, Brian Valente and all of his masters over there had designed, and we kind of, you know, made our own designs. Uh, one was what we call man cam, and that's basically where you have a handle out in front of the lens to the left, and a handle in the rear of the lens, and they're diagonally across each other. So you got one in the front and one in the back of the camera. And this makes the camera incredibly stable, so it doesn't wobble. And it also makes it where you can go do a high angle and do a low angle all in one shot. So it's similar to the Stubling ring a little bit then. Exactly. Yes, the Stubling rig is is basically where it came out of. But you know, he's using uh, you know they're using Zeiss primes. I'm using Panavision Primos. So the weight of those lenses are anywhere from four to seven pounds. So already you're starting to put a little more girth on the camera, which helps your stabilization. Yeah. Now this gives you a handheld feel that you've never seen before. Because not very many people operate cameras, 35 millimeter cameras, out in front of you with your arms being the guns, basically, and hand-holding this camera. 
So what I found is when I was following the Navy SEALs and, and, you know, handheld and pushing with them and pulling with them, it was an awesome style of handheld that you kind of hadn't seen before. And like taking the example of the techno crane shot, what I did with that one is I used a little wider lens than we wanted. And I did the shot just like a techno, but you could obviously feel my footsteps to some extent. And the push in with my arm was a little, you know, slightly shaky, but, you know, not bad. And what we would do is in post, we would push in a little bit and we would stabilize it. So now you have this perfect fluid move. And anytime we went into that mode where we said, okay, we don't want this to be handheld and shaky, but we want it to feel like the techno crane, that was our cocktail. So you're using the, the wonderful uh, abilities of like what you can in post to problem solve and kind of, you know, again, take this technology to, uh, you know, an out of the box kind of thinking process right off the bat. It's like, I want a techno crane. Okay, well, I need to be high and then I need to be low and I got to push into like a two foot close up, you know, where I'm like two feet away from them. So I'm like, all right, so I'm probably going to come around. I got this chair that's there that I can't move because it's on the sub. I got to lunge out over that thing. That's probably going to be shaky. So we look at it and play back and it is. So we're like, all right, let's go. Instead of a 21 mil, let's go to a 17.5. We'll push in and uh, make it like the techno crane. And I just saw the shot the other day and it's like, you know, swoops right in beautifully you know, feels like I was on a techno crane. Right. Part of the, the minus of the working with the real set is that you've got the real ergonomics and the real geography of the place. You have to work around that, so thus you have to be more flexible with your gear. Exactly. That was one of the rigs we used. Then we used the Red Rock shoulder mount that we I absolutely love. It, to me, it's the best one out there because it rests on your shoulder. There's these big counterweights that you put on the back, which, again, weights down the camera that's very light. Uh, then, you know, you have your, uh, you know, your handlebars out front with your handles. Now, what we ended up doing on that is we did a custom plate, Hurlbut Visuals, my company, built a whole what we call the HV base plate. And that has where the rods slide on it, and it mounts with a really right stuff bracket. And you can slide the camera left and right to be able to fit in your eye if you want to use a Zakuda finder or slide in the, uh, you know, to the center, and you can watch it off the LCD screen. So each one of the Red Rock mounts we kind of you know, used uh, to their you know, best ability. And then we kind of altered it with a little custom stuff of what we learned on the film and what we found was the best. So can I jump back to the man cam? Obviously it's extra weight, but have you tried that with gyros on it at all? Gyros suck. <laughs> yeah. Gyros is, I'm telling you, I'm running a blog on my website in like a week that basically spells this thing out. It is the most unnatural ridiculous thing that you can put on this camera it is so not right as you say the glass can be your gyro i've just played with the just with the l glass 1.2 is an incredible difference in stability versus just going with a little 1.4 even that amount of mass just changing it on the lens is getting to be enough so no doubt if you're putting a primo on front yes. that's going to do even more so yeah absolutely and what what i found is the the gyro stabilization i i was like okay i'm going to try this again 
Okay, we we did the gyro stabilization. We tried it uh, for you know backpedaling down hallways and all that stuff with the Navy SEAL guys. And you know, anytime I wanted to just you know do a little like because I'm you know it's it's action. You know, I want to be able to slide a little to the to the right, catch the you know butt of his gun, and then over you know the tip of his gun back down to him. It was like you know you know the thing spin right out of my hand. I'm like you know chuck the thing on the ground yeah i'm like rip this thing off so then i was like all right let's try it one more time let's try it on this little post rig and put our gyros off on each side so we can get x y and z axis disaster so you know i'm i'm all for you know this man cam rig with with the weight the shoulder mount it's very stable and and uh you know absolutely perfect for uh for for delivering you know beautiful handheld i mean christ it looks like a steady cam sometimes the man cam the way you move uh with that added weight so are we talking five d's here or seven d's because obviously if you're talking primo glass you're obviously getting vignetting issues and there's the whole panavision mount issue as well well so here's the the you know you use the cameras to design how wide you want to go you know it's like 5D is king, okay? And all my side-by-side tests, there's no reason to shoot any of the other ones. Only if you want to be able to get wide, only if you want to be able to shoot above 1600 ISO. So basically, you need all of them, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> but you start with the 5D. It's like starting with your Airy Cam or starting with your Platinum. That is the main body. That's what you shoot everything on until you can't. So what I would do is, you know, my 35 mil is my wide lens that I can put on a 5D Primo-wise with the vignetting. Well, that is with the VistaVision sensor, that's a 24 mil. That's a beautiful lens. Yeah. You can do a lot with that. So if I wanted to go wider than a 24, then I would go to the 7D which I could fly a 21, a 17.5, and a 14.5 with the Primos. And then if on the sub, I could go up to a 17.5 without vignetting. So, you know, you had your kind of uh, recipe for uh, making the Primos work. And, you know, the Primo, obviously they're, you know, in this lawsuit right now with Canon, so, you know, those uh, being able to use those have has, uh, you know, kind of changed the way that I'm doing things. You know, I so the way the lawsuit has manifested itself at the moment is that basically if they know you're renting the glass to go with a cannon rig, the job's off. Yes. Yeah. OK. You can still get the mounts. The mounts are there. They just won't give them to you. Yeah. OK. You know, because this technology, you know, I was slowly cracking the egg to figuring it out. You know, I would be driving down the the Coanga Pass heading down to, to work and I'd have this idea. What if we can mount the three to one onto this thing? You know, I mean, I call Guy McVicker up. I go, Guy, can we do a three to one rig where you support it and do all this and everything? And it's like, yeah, yeah. Let me look, let me look into that. You know, a day later, we're out on a dry lake bed shooting these, you know, DC threes landing, and I'm doing a, a 650 millimeter Primo glass with a three to one. You know, and the images are stunning. Hmm. 
you know, so it's just a, a, a huge evolution process through, you know, basically mounting a chip to a incredibly expensive, beautiful piece of glass. Okay. If 5D is your main camera, how are you getting by the 24 25 issue? Okay. So here is, and everyone is going to have their, what works for them. And everyone's going to have their own opinion of how this works. 24p is dead to me. Okay. And this is the reason. This is a cocktail. And the cocktail is shooting at 30p and then twixtering it to 24. You get two things out of this. You get to shoot the 5D and its amazing sensor, which far surpasses the 7D and the 1D. And you also get, because with any HD technology, you have that kind of bizarre crispness that you get. Well, when you put it through Twixter, it just softens that edge just so slightly to make it look like film. And that has been my cocktail. So even with the 24P update, if I'm shooting a movie with the 5D and I'm shooting 30P and Twixtering it to 24, that cocktail is representing me delivering images that look like film. I'm not familiar with the Twixter thing. I'm going to cut this bit out so I sound really professional. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, this is a company, T-W-I-X-T-O-R. And these guys came up with this logarithm. And there's all different recipes within their logarithm. So if one recipe doesn't work to make it take the click, click, click out, you can use all these different logarithm recipes. And one will always work. And they also do slow-mo. So, you know, I was also, you know, anytime we wanted to do slow-mo on the movie, most of the time we shot with a 435 at 120 frames per second or whatever. But, uh, you know, if we didn't want to shoot that and didn't want to have to adjust all the light, we would just, you know, twixture it. And their slow-mo is pretty incredible. So when you're shooting with the 7D, you set that at 24p though? Uh, no, no, I'll shoot that at 30p and still twixture it. Really? When you've got the 24 option. Interesting. So when yeah. the 5D gets the 24p firmware, you're still just going to be shooting 30p and twixter it back. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as it stands right now, because what I'm finding is the 24p is, you know, giving me a little too much of the crispness, which also gives away and it looks like video. So some of the uh, frame interpolating and frame blending for you is part of the film softness and part of that film look. Yes. And, okay. you know, there's some times where it looks like, well, what was that? But, you know, it far, uh, the benefits far outweigh the negatives. That Navy swimmer spot is all shot 30p and all twixted to 24? Yes. Okay. We shoot at 30p and our sound is shot at uh, 23.98 or whatever it is, right? Yep. So then when we go, when we put it into the Avid or the Final Cut, it immediately, you know, there's a function there that says convert to 24 and immediately drops the frames. So everything syncs out. Once we get our EDL, Okay, we take those files and we start to twixter them. And we twixter the whole cut. 
So we have plenty of handles if the edit goes long or whatever. So everything is Twixtered. And with the new software, it used to be an hour a minute. Now it's down to a half hour a minute. So a half hour a minute, you get, you know, your Twixtered footage and, you know, you will do the, the whole EDL and then you go back and plug those things, you know, into your edit. Well, all right. The next elephant in the room, which obviously with the kind of dynamic visuals you're working with, is rolling shutter. Is that a similar post fix and just take each shot uh, as it comes and just fix it in post? Let's go back to the slow-mo for one second, sure. uh, one last time. What I found with the 70 and the 1D, once you go to slow-mo on those cameras, it is an aliasing moray nightmare. You know, and it's like by dropping those lines, you're dropping even more because the the camera's basically doing every third line in the camp in, in on the sensor, right? So by doing that, that's what's giving you any more a problems and any aliasing. And with the five D, you have not as much of the issues that you have with the 70 and the 1D because both of those have a little more depth of field and you start to see deeper and you start any kind of, uh, you know, lines uh, kind of, you know, create the, the moray effect and, and, and uh, the aliasing issues and all that stuff. So what I do is, like we said, you know, any slow-mo that is not film that I shoot, uh, then I will twixter it. And there is a whole plan of attack that goes into anything that you want to slow-mo and twixter you can't move the camera a lot you got to do you know specific little things to to make it look very good but you know as long as you know those parameters you you can pull it off so rather than so, go 50 frames on the 7d you'd stick to 20 stick to 30 on the 5d and stick to 1080p and then and do the slow-mo in post Exactly, because all your aliasing issues and everything else that come along with that, it's not worth it. You know, amongst the 15 cameras, I also have a 435, and that's my get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, when I need to do slow-mo that, you know, needs movement and stuff. All right, well, jumping back to the other elephant in the room of the rolling shutter, is the 435 your rolling shutter get-out-of-free card as well? No, the rolling shutter issue for me doesn't exist. I'm still trying to understand everyone's issues on this one. I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of with you. And I answer this in a blog on, I probably answer 20 of these questions a day. (laughs) You know, the rolling shutter on the whole Navy SEAL movie that is shot an equivalent of 1.5 million feet of film I had one rolling shutter issue. That's pretty extraordinary. Is that because you're using faster shutter speeds than usual no. Uh, 180? No. Uh, I use a 40th or a 50th of a shutter. You mm-hmm. never go above that. Anytime you go above that, you start looking like video. So you don't do 60th to be 180, no. 180 of 30th. Oh, boy, no. 60th is the recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's making your, you know, that's instantly taking your beautiful 5D that gives you filmic images and turning into a Panasonic 3700. This is because obviously you are twixtering back to 24. Not so much that. It's, it's that the more you sharpen the image, the more it looks plastic and the more it looks like, you know, video. Mm. So I use the, you know, the, the ability of the motion blur 
and slightly because of the motion blur, you know, you're making it look more like film. You know, shooting at a 50th is like shooting at a 200-degree shutter. You know, I shot the whole Rat Pack on a 200-degree shutter. I loved that look. Uh, on Terminator, I shot that on a 144-degree shutter because I wanted that world to just be a little – I mean, we're talking subtle here. But, sure. you know, sure. overall, you know, it – you know, being obsessed with the subtleties is what – as a moviegoer, you feel something. You're not sure what it is, but you feel it. So that's what, you know, on on the Navy SEAL movie, I think, again, it was the cocktail of Twixter and shooting at a 140th and 150th of a second uh, that, you know, I, I didn't have any rolling shutter issues. Never rolling shutter issues with all the helicopter blades. No rolling shutters with whipped whip pans. You know, none of that stuff just didn't come up. You know, techno crane moves where we won't go screaming into somebody's face. No, no rolling shutter issues there. You know, I I think it was a part of the cocktail that we had, you know, kind of put together. The only rolling shutter issue that I had on this whole movie was when an M4 rifle with a full load, you know, blank was shot into my face. And, you know, that shooting into my face, the muzzle flash is so huge on an M4 that the rolling shutter would actually uh, create bars like a bad sunk up television. Like camera flashes. Yes. And you'd see like a roll bar go across the image. So what we ended up doing is going whenever we did that live fire, well, not live fire, but blank fire, we would go to a 30th of a second which would make your roll bar much larger uh, so you had a better uh, uh, chance of getting it, you know, uh, on film, the muzzle flash, and then we're going to have to go into, you know, Inferno or Flame and kind of uh, paint the roll bar out, which we've done, and it worked beautifully. So I'm jumping back a little bit just to what you're saying when you're shooting T4 at uh, 144 degrees, was it? That would be like an 80th of a second. Yes, yeah, so that's going against a little bit you shooting 5D footage at, say, 40th and 50th. Right. That's because, you know, Terminator was film. So, you know, that slightly hyper shutter is much more organic looking yeah. than the electronic shutter that you have in an HD camera. You know, the electronic shutter for me, it's like you always want to back it off to the point of a 50th or a 40th. That's where I kind of roll. It sort of goes against my mindset, but I'm sure you tested the shit out of it. So, uh... Oh, yeah. I mean, I did tests. You know, I took this this whole process with with doing this i had to convince everyone that we could do this on a big screen and i also had to convince the imax vendors that we could do this on a 60 foot screen so what we did is i did a series of tests where we did all the different shutter speeds all the different lenses you know all the different picture styles that i kind of cocked up you know all that stuff to the point where we you know came up to this cocktail this this recipe that we had and the recipe everyone sees and i'm telling you they are blown out it's been it's been so cool you get all these people in a room you know we got this awesome screening room over at bandito brothers where we produce the movie and you know they walk in there and they walk out and it's just like you know these their faces are just like in awe you know how did you do this is basically what they keep on saying 
it, it could be said that the whole DSLR thing is just stopgap until Red comes out with Epic and Scarlet. And you're going to have in your hand for the same form factor, you can choose whatever frame rate and shutter you want. There's no rolling shutter really, or it's greatly reduced. You're going to have a much wider dynamic range, which is something we haven't quite touched on yet either. Is that something that you're looking forward to? Uh, not so much. Because what you have is you have a camera that still doesn't know how to deliver skin tones. And when it's all said and done, that's the heart of the film. You're identifying with these characters because of who they are and and something that is real to your eye. And Canon has been in this business of digital censoring 20 years prior to Red even having a twinkle in their eye of manufacturing this camera. Genesis, Panavision, Sony, Panasonic. They've been developing this sensor. They've been, you know, moving the curves, bending the toe, doing all this stuff to create skin tones and a picture that looks real. And there's just no substitute for it. You give me a red, you give me a scarlet, you give me epic, I shoot a DSL. R. DSLR. <laughs> <laughs> so well with uh um I, I won't get started on the whole red thing but um <laughs> don't get me wrong i i mean the later x sensor which is literally footage is only just rolling out now what i've seen in the later builds and this new mysterium x stuff is just completely changing things again right. so no i mean i i will test this thing i will you know get it i will shoot it i will do it all that's uh, necessary to you know try out that form factor but you know when it's all said and done right now you know i am i'm completely convinced on this technology and it's a technology that when somebody delivers something else you know these guys are going to fire the shot and it's going to knock everyone out and we're about six months to vaporizing film and that's what's so exciting to me because once you dig into the sensor and you realize the power of it right now we're only extrapolating every third line once that is a raw form factor file, it's over. Yep. So, you know, that's where, you know, it's exciting, you know. And what I love is this is the wild, wild west, you know, and I'm the cowboy. Yeehaw! <laughs> you know, it's like you can always tell when this kind of thing comes because it's, it's not, you know, all the major camera manufacturers that are telling us how to, to do this. It's, you know, a guy in a, in a garage in Valencia that's coming up with something. And it's this guy in Switzerland that's extracting raw data. And it's a guy over here. I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's coming in. It's global. You know, it's coming in from everywhere. What I saw of a little screening, I was, I have to say, the, I was very impressed with the red. But I'm still, you know, for me, there's so much about taking a camera and still making it as small as this DSLR. It's, you can be everything. It can be a two-and-a-half-pound rig camera that you can snap off in a collision and pick the thing up and recycle the card, or you can build it with a three-to-one Primo Prime. It's like it can be everything, and that's what all the other manufacturers still have not gotten. And you know, once they do, once they really understand the power of a camera that can, ex that can expand and contract 
with the demands of a film, you know, then then they're going to start to, you know, in my book, create serious competition. But right now, there isn't. There's a whole bunch of elephants up the back of the room here. But one yeah. of them, the other one of them is the uh, color space elephant and the whole the fact that obviously what we're shooting here is, is a compressed moving JPEG, essentially. How do you work around it? Obviously, you, I guess you use a, a, a custom setup on the camera. What uh, is there a simple recipe to that? Well, here's what I found. You know, it's like, and I'm running a blog about color correction in about a week. And uh, this blog basically kind of spells it out. And what I've done is you have to embrace it. Everything about this camera is if you just embrace it, it will blow you, your mind. So what I do is like when we talked about the Twixter thing, I embrace the 8-bit compressed color. That's what gives you the look of film. Okay. When you take a red raw file or a Panasonic 3700 or a Genesis or whatever, it has that crispness. It has that sharpness. It has all that stuff. So, you know, you're constantly in the post process, you know, softening and doing whatever, but it still has the feel. No matter what you do to it, it still feels the way it feels. With this 5D, I embrace the compression and that adds to my cocktail of making it look like film. So 8-bit compressed color, treat it like reversal film stock, okay? You have to get it close. If you don't, it's a recipe for disaster. You know, you cannot take an image that you forgot to adjust your color temp and it's blue and you need to turn it white. You can get it there, but it's going to feel funky. So what I've done is, you know, you just treat the image like you are putting the laden image that will have no color correction possibilities onto that CF card. And that has been my recipe. Obviously, you do a lot of grading afterwards anyway. Oh, absolutely. What I did is, you know, I create the camera and I turn it into a digital imaging technician. The camera becomes the dick. So in my picture styles, I have a picture style that I love to light to. That's what the look of the movie is going to be. So we put that picture style up. And if it's day exteriors, we don't really we roll with that picture style and we see where it is, you know, and then I slide over to what I call we called it seal raw. OK, and seal raw was, you know, a picture style that I basically went into the computer and I bent the curves so I could suppress the highlights a little bit so they didn't blow so much and give me a little more latitude in the blacks. So we would get our exposure on, you know, or light to the lighting monitor with this lookup table that was how I wanted the film to look. And then right before we rolled, we slid it down and punched the select button and rolled on seal raw. So it would give me a little more uh, color correction in the under and the over. Right. So, you know, that was our uh, our plan of attack on this movie. And it worked really well. I mean, you know, you got to understand the whole idea. The only reason I ever embraced this technology is because I think it finally came from where it should have come in the first place. Think about how motion picture started. 
It was a pinhole camera that some guy stuck his finger in front of it and started to move it back and forth real fast. I wonder what happens if this thing moves. You know, it's like, once again, who gave Panasonic and Sony the keys to the castle? The ENG news gathering guys, you know, the keys to the castle to design our HD you know, platform. So it's finally come back to where it start, should have started in the first place from a still camera giving, getting us to the point where they're going to tell us what their HD platform is and they're going to give the look and the feel. And right now, that's 8-bit compressed color. So I'm embracing that 8-bit compressed color. It is part of my cocktail of making it look filmic. Cool. However it comes. You know, the whole HDSLR thing is uh, it's a wake-up call to the industry to start to think outside the box. It's a wake-up call for the studios and everyone else to say, you know what, we can make movies for less than $250 million. You know, it's, a, it's pretty cool. You know, I, I think it's it's going to, you know, generate huge benefits. It is a game changer. It is the paradigm shift. It's all those things you hear, and uh, it's going to start a revolution. Shane, thank you so much. It's been uh, absolutely brilliant. I'm I'm blown away. Thank you so much, man. Oh, right. you are so welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. Oh, look, look, pleasure. How can people uh, reach you and find out more? If they do find out more, please shut the hell up about Rolling Shutter. But if they do contact <laughs> you on your blog, how to, where, what's the best place to find you? Yes, you can uh, You can get me at uh, – you can go to the blog at hurlbuttvisuals.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a blog attached to that website. Uh, also, you can go to Shane at Robot Visuals uh, to send me uh, any emails. And, you know, my blog is very personal. I, am, uh, I answer every comment, every one of them. I don't have anyone answering it. There's no, you know, Wizard of Oz and the curtain is, is drawn. It is me every day sitting down at the computer and answering these blogs personally. So it's something that I believe in. It's something that I started and I want to uh, continue to give back. And, you know, my elite team members uh, have been so incredible in embracing this new technology. And we're trying to just, uh, you know, spread the word. You're also doing uh, speaking engagements, yeah? Yeah, so uh, right now I have uh, I'm going to be at Creatosphere in Los Angeles uh, on the 18th and uh, of February, and I'm going to be doing kind of a uh, very hands-on uh, presentation where everyone can kind of check out the whole Robot Visuals Movie Maker package. And this uh, Movie Maker I've uh, designed and turned this whole camera that we've talked about into a system. And it's very much like Panavision is done where, you know, all the lenses fit on the camera. They talk to the camera. They have the same rings to fit on the clamp on map box. The filtration is all the same. It's not all different sizes. I have this whole cage that takes it so you don't have to use the little batteries in the camera and that cage is powered by an Anton Bauer in your backpack and and a camera it powers a Barton follow focus it powers up you know your monitor so it's like it, it's become a system 
And, you know, this was going to, this is going to be on display at Creatosphere at Universal City Walk on February 18th. And then I have a speaking engagement in the Palm Springs uh, photo conference that they're having. And uh, I'll put the particulars on my blog of, of the dates and, and when that is. And I'm also going to be speaking in Michigan at a, uh, at a conference up there in April. And I'm also speaking at Tampa Film School in April also. Wow. So I'll, I'll, up all the, I'll update all of those things on the blog as they come, speaking engagements, where I'm going to be. And uh, if you're in the area, I'd love to see you and uh, would love to talk about this amazing emerging technology that is absolutely the game changer. Fantastic. Well, look, it's been brilliant and it's been uh, a real eye-opener. And part of the brilliance for me has been seeing someone who has that film background and is now embracing this sort of stuff and, and not just taking it, but just grabbing it by the scrap of the neck and punching it in the face. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's uh, it has been a battle, uh, Jason. And don't get me wrong. I have got more gray hairs over trying to, you know, be a pioneer in this technology that has beaten me to a pulp but you know it is uh it is so inspirational and so exciting and what you what your where your mind can go now where it never could have uh when you were moving the mass is what's so you know incredibly exciting and inspirational for me so that's where i am thank you you got it jason Well, that was good. That was a bit long, but good. Yeah. And uh, our thanks to Shane for doing that because yeah, we really so do much, appreciate uh, people taking time to to go to the Red Room. This is exactly what Red Room, or exactly what Red Center was born to do to 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 have conversations like that. I think that's just like just wonderful. Um, so we're going to get to gear now, and we have uh, two things for you in gear. The first of these is um, Steadicam. So. Uh, a while ago, I think I joked about it on Red Center that uh, we're really keen to get a Steadicam. It is now no joke. It is now no joke. No. Um, so we got the... The joke uh, was probably us operating it initially, but we're all incredibly seasoned operators now with cert- certified. I must admit, uh, Jace came on the uh, training boot camp, as did a couple of other I our did. guys. And uh, so this is the Tiffin Steadicam flyer. Uh, there was some discussion about not buying the Steadicam, buying the Glidecam. Um, but I've got to tell you, we, <laughs> we've Sorry. learned a lot about... Um, <laughs> This, obviously, from using it intensively for, mm. uh, for a week or two. Um, one of the things I was really impressed with, Jace, is the quality of the Steadicam Flyer version 2 that we yeah. bought. And we were lucky enough to actually be running it in side-by-side with the Steadicam Flyer 1. And there is a really L- big LE difference. LE and the non. I think yours is called the LE. Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah, big difference. It is completely re-engineered, every single part of it, particularly that center post. It's got nice, big, fat grip. It's lighter. It's. I mean, obviously, we were flying two different cameras. But um, yeah, it's incredibly different. It has a beautifully piece, you know, made piece of kit, and you can clearly have no regrets of, of buying that. And obviously, as um, as we were taken through the differences between this and the, uh, I guess whatever the options were, would have been maybe Glidecam and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of um, adjustments and controls on 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 the even on the the Flyer LE, which is sort of in the middle of the range, the lower end of the range of the sizes of Steadicams that this unit would have that it's equivalent in glide cam world or 
you know copycat world wouldn't have you know particularly in adjusting where the vest uh, hits into the uh, where the vest and the arm meet which is as we know now obviously is incredibly critical in all those adjustments yeah it's beautifully made beautifully yeah i mean made. it's packaging horses, for courses and the reason we went for the flyer le was uh, not a price-based decision it was literally a weight-based decision because our desire to use it is to use it at places like NAB when we're doing interviews and stuff. Now, if we had a bigger Steadicam rig, it would be heavier and thus the operator wouldn't be able to go very long. So, in a sense, if you went heavier, you'd be going for a take-type um, mo- mode of working where we, I would you'd direct, I would do, well, maybe not me, but someone would do a bunch of takes and then you'd stop after four or five takes, put the camera down, rest the operator and then go again. Mm. Um, in this world, by keeping it lighter, you can actually afford to operate it longer, which, of course, you would need for an interview because that's going to last a fairly long time. But it's at the top of its weight uh, ratio sort of uh, allowance to put a red on there. So yeah, assuming that Scarlet and Epic red, is, yeah. is, is less than the red one, yeah. then you'd be fine with a Scarlet and Epic. Um, I can't say that it's going to be fine for all Epic combinations because obviously you'll be able to pump that sucker up. But we had uh, battery mounts at the bottom. We've got the V-Lock battery mounts at the bottom. The only thing I was disappointed about on the Flyer LE is that they, there is a red camera option. Even the guys at, at Tiffin that I spoke to off the record sort of agreed that that was actually a pretty stupid move because it was sort of priced at a premium. Right. Like red users were so stupid that they wouldn't notice that they were paying extra. Right. Um, the second what did you was, get for that? What were they going to... It was uh, cable for red stuff. Yeah, the other big yeah. problem I've got with them is the cost of the HD monitor option for the bottom right. is absurdly expensive. So we actually got a uh, tiny little um, breakout box that's going to do a HD to SD status conversion so that the monitor will run uh, correctly. Yeah, which is, yeah, fair enough. At the other end of the scale, because uh, we also ran a bunch of cameras in the middle, like P2s and um, well, that Sony, what was the uh, model number on that one? Um, uh, the the one that uh, yeah. uh, was the uh, JVC 101. JVC, right. GY101 or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, you know, can, which can get quite bulky. Yeah, we went, we used 7D, the, your P2, uh, the JVC. Well, I was impressed with the, the 7D on it. It was kind of fun. Yeah, well, I was, was really surprised we could balance it up quite well. And, uh, yeah, so it's a perfect choice. You could put seven, 5D or 7D on it, and uh, and it wasn't totally it. We didn't have to slam a whole bunch of weight on it to get it balanced. No, we actually had a stubling stew, rig on the top of the steady cam to give it a bit more weight because yeah. we learned that momentum helps. Yeah. Um, and so that was a fun-looking rig. Yeah, that worked well. And uh, and so they'd be able to do that at the low end and then still be, for it be capable to put a stripped-down red one or, or uh, Scarlet and Epic in it. So. Yeah, I think we'll use it a lot. But that's because, as I say, we're aiming for it for an interview longer period uh, type run. What's nice, though, is it seemed to be very, uh, especially the LE model, a really nice build quality. Like yeah. The, the whole pins, packaging, the, they've all thought about mm. it, you know, the way it all fits in its case and it's all just just beautifully made, very, very comfortable. It's very comfortable to operate. Yeah. Well, the original one had just a bunch of little compromises that they'd done, perhaps for price, I don't know, but they were just a bit niggling. Like there's a C-stand that literally comes in the steady case uh, pack mm. that would fit in the soft case or the hard case so you could take it um, overseas and then the other end, obviously you need that C-stand to, to build the camera. Um, the the one in the initial Steadicam was 
pretty much useless. It was too lightweight, and so you would not reliably want to put an expensive camera on it. The new one is very compact and clever, but actually just solid enough that you would be very comfortable putting a camera up on it. And it's it was a little bit more adaptable to the... Um, you could pull out the oh, yeah. vest pin and put the... Uh, to go goofy foot, which is basically putting the arm pointing on the other side, so you're actually doing your operating with your right hand, which is more, what I more, more favour, or versus the other way. So you needed to... Um, with the non-LE, the earlier model, you just couldn't even you couldn't do that at all. You had to, I think, start unbolting stuff or pulling circlips out, which is impossible. So, um, so we're going to be doing more with Steadicam in FX PhD, especially next term. Um, I think the thing is, Jace, I I really felt like we were getting, you know, I mean, a quantum leap in kind of production value because it's so hard to get handheld to look any good, and a lot of these environments that's you know you really can't put down sticks and sort of spread out. Um, it and it was just as fun. It was fun. You just were absolutely loving it. You were in, ball. You were just in your element. I just I remember loved the it to times do. you said this is the best one. <laughs> it was. <laughs> well, you'd used one before, right? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I used to in my one. old life and go um, whenever I had a spare week, go to Panavision and just put the old you know Model Three A on Steadicam and just annoy the hell out of people running around Panavision just to, just for fun. So uh, yeah, it was kind of like. It was kind of like you know riding a bicycle. You could literally just put it back on again and go. Oh, this feels quite comfortable. Uh, it was a lot lighter, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think I was really, really impressed with it. And obviously, what's fantastic about it is the guy that originally invented it is still there, right, hands on inventing and designing all the models now, and this flyer well, and the Merlin. I, can and I throw all down stuff. a challenge to you to see if you can find him at NAB for a red definitely? Room. I'm sure Garrett will be there. And uh, if anyone knows Garrett. Jason, I would love to meet him by a beer in Vegas. Definitely. I've, I've been a fan of uh, the god of a man that he is um, for many moons and uh, back in, you know, uh, Skycam and uh, um, all, all of his fantastic inventions. I love him. So, yeah. So, I'm, we've only got, we've got, we're <laughs> running way over time. Only two things we want to finish up with. Uh, the other thing was a weird piece of light metering gear you found, which I thought was very funny. Uh, yeah, no, that's, this is, I, uh, this, you put, you've got that it's, on your yeah, screen. Yeah, it's the light meter. It's like three iPhone light meter app. <laughs> and what it basically does is, is, if I understand it correctly, is it take a picture of a scene and then you can adjust what the apparent look would be within a third of a stop by changing the ISO or the exposure, right? Yeah. So you capture your you capture a frame and then basically you can then go into a menu and say set. 400 ASA and it'll tell you what your shutter speed and or uh, aperture would be to but capture that scene. for your iPhone? Not, it's not for your iPhone. This is basically, you know, that. as an emergency situation and that's what we sort of you know, alluded to, I guess, with the, the whole light meter thing apart from doing lighting ratios is pretty much becoming a bit of an old a bit of a bit of old I would, hat. I would love to see how accurate this is. Yeah, well, it is reported to be, you know, a third of a stop or half a stop accurate, which is uh, which is okay. So theoretically, you can then lock some of those uh, functions and so you could say lock the aperture and then change your ISO and it'll tell you, you know, what the matching uh, shutter speed would be. So essentially like doing aperture priority or or, or shutter priority, it'll it'll tell you uh, you can change one parameter, and it'll 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 affect the others, and show you what the, what 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 the what the math is. Cool, so it's kind of nuts, kind of clever. I think it's called uh, creatively uh, light meter light, for the iPhone. Light meter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that's it. Uh, Want to thank everybody, uh, especially Matt, who does our editing and stuff behind the scenes. We have a normally at the end of the show a shout out for somebody who um, actually provided. Uh, how can I put this? A um, uh, 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 
a very useful and interesting Twitter feed that's worth following. And I think, Jace, this week um, we should go for somebody who you actually referred to earlier in the show uh, because um, you got a tip from him that you used in the show. Oh, Tom Dobby. Yes, why not? No, I think his, uh, his Twitter name is Tom Dobby. Yeah, T-O-M-D-O-B-B-I-E. Tom's actually a stills photographer and actually does really, really nice stills work. Now, I'm not just saying that because it has diamonds on guitars, but it is just really worth checking out his site. If you go to his Twitter profile, you'll see a link there to his uh, URL, which unsurprisingly is tondobby.com. Um, Right, and I think actually I don't think he mentions it in the um, in the interview, but uh, Shane Herbert is also on Twitter. I think it is. I'll double check it, but I think it's uh, Herbert Images or Herbert Visuals. I think it is. Um, maybe just do a bit of a go- Google for that one. But uh, yeah, uh, Shane's also on Twitter. Um, okay, well I think that's pretty much it. Thanks for kicking on with us to the very end here. Um, and yeah, again, let us know if we think it's it's too long. I'm sure probably you probably won't. Um, it's uh, I think it's one of those things where I've I've cut down interviews before, and sometimes you know you just always regret it. There's always there's always a bit of information that you just love to to hang on to, and uh, Shane was just so so cram full of uh, interesting interesting thoughts. That I thought, yeah, we should uh, keep it long this week. So thank you so much, guys, for uh, sticking with us. And um, Mike, where can people uh, find Sorry, you? I'm not, I'm not finding Holbert Visual, but we'll put it in the show notes. We'll find it, and we'll put it there. Um, you can find me over at FX Guide, of course, uh, or I'm on the Twitters as Mike Seymour, but you guys know that because you guys listen. Like yeah, same. I'm, I'm, Wingrove? I'm Wingrove or jasonwingrove.com for my... Um, uh, website and showreel, etc. Have passport, will travel. Mm. Yum. So, uh, you're going to be busy this week? You got stuff on? Uh, no, I'm just going to be dicking around with my 5D and uh, mucking around, having um, basically just uh, getting getting to know it and having a bit of a fiddle, basically. I'm between projects, as they say. So, I'll just be uh, going for my PhD in piss farting around. I have a lot of compositing to do on your short film. <laughs> you do. Thank you. And until next time, guys. See you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.